You're listening to Consolidate That. Welcome back to Consolidate That, Ivan. Great to see you again. Really excited about our guest joining us from the, for me, the other side of the pond, depending on where you're listening to. It might be on your side of the pond, though. Yeah, well, uh, Ivan, back here. Uh, I was just thinking where you located. I think it's a walk and a pond for you. For me, it's really just the pond. So I'm right on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you live on the water. I live in the real world. <laughs> oh, there we go. So very excited, very excited to introduce you guys to Matthew Flan, who is the managing director at Pennard Vets. He graduated from Royal Veterinary College in 1999 as a veterinary surgeon and took a position in Pennard Vets Kent, where he and his colleagues provided high-class medical care. Now, for people in North America, the veterinary surgeon means that he's a veterinarian. They're just called veterinary surgeons there. And they don't call themselves doctors there, which we do in North America. I remember, huh. yeah, we hired a person in SmartFlow. We hired a person from Scotland and we went to the Western conference and she was completely pissed off that everybody calls themselves doctors. <laughs> so, so it was very interesting. But Matthew, thank you so much for finding the time. Thank you for joining us. Glad to see you here. Thank you. Thank you, Ivan. And nice to meet you, Ryan. Nice to meet you, Ivan. I'm still staggered by this doctor story here. I mean, I I have to tell a quick story for you on this. So my father-in-law is a veterinarian. My sister-in-law is a veterinarian as well. And when I first met my father-in-law, I called him Mr. Markham. And he was very quick to correct me and say, it's doctor, doctor. And for the longest time, I resisted that just as a power struggle. And so my sister-in-law by marriage. So my wife's brother's wife, both she and I just refused to call him anything for a very long time until one day we both got together. And after about three or four years, we said, you know what? We're not calling him doctor anymore. We're calling him by his first name. We both like shook hands and made a pact. Like we're going in, we're going in, we're calling him by his first name. And he just started dying laughing because he had been messing with us for years. So I'm always very cautious now to call people doctors, but it's good to know that we can call you Matthew instead of Dr. You can, and just as an, a bit of an update, we are now uh, doctoring up in this country. There's, as of a few years ago, we had the ability to call ourselves doctors. So most of the younger colleagues have all got doctors in front of their names. Mm. And there's, there's a few of us around that are still loyally holding on to the surgeon title and surgeons are called misters, aren't they? So if you have a surgeon, certainly in the UK, if you're a surgeon, you're a mister. And that's what it is. All miss, all misses, all miss. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll switch to what we want to talk about today because we didn't say that. So it is very exciting to talk about the group. So Pannard Vets are a group of hospitals. And how many of them, Matthew, today? At the moment, we have six practices and a out of hours, which is an ER center for you guys. And a few other bits and bobs like a catchery and things like that. So, and we've got another practice joining the family in, in the next six weeks or so. Excellent. Well, congratulations on all the success. So, the structure here not only it's a group of hospitals, but it is also owned by employees. And we wanted to talk about this model. I'm very excited to learn how did this evolve because my assumption that you didn't start there, guys, you were just veterinary hospitals. And then you said, hey, let's share the wealth and the success between all of us. So where did this idea come from? How big were you as an organization when you came out with this idea? And how did you actually operationalize this transition? So loaded question. Okay. So a bit of background. The practice is 125 years old. 
So there's a lot of history. There's a lot of legacy with the practice, which is wonderful. It's really good. And so I joined the practice, what, 20 odd years ago. And myself and two, three other colleagues have been running the place for the last 10 years, that, that kind of time frame. And we've been getting bigger. The last year, 10 years or so, we've doubled in size. And there's a very large trend towards corporate ownership in the UK. Whether it's quite at 80% or not, I don't know. It's certainly north of 60, 70, that kind of level. And we're certainly one of the bigger ones left, which haven't sold to one of the big consolidators. So we were getting asked an awful lot from the team, when are you going to sell? What's going to happen? What's our future? And we would always come back and say, look, we don't want to sell. We're in it for the long term and that type of thing. But unfortunately, lots of colleagues always say that until the day they sell. Lots of colleagues have always said, oh, I'm never going to sell to the corporates. I'll be independent. And then then you get a text message from them with, you know, say, oh, I've sold and that's fantastic. So and you congratulate them and, and that's wonderful for them. So there was no reason for our teams really to believe that we were being true. And when you've got an organization of about 100 people, the personal trust you have with individuals is is that much thinner, if that makes sense. So we were, okay, we thought it's a bit of a problem. And then a few years ago as well, we were thinking, you know, what can we do to get the practice to be around another 125 years? So in this country, there's a big department store called John Lewis, which is, if you've ever lived in the UK, you'd recognize it. And that has a like an employee ownership partnership model. So we kind of looked at them. We did certainly speak to our accountants and other people in the area for advice and so on. But in the end, we learned more about employee ownership through the Employee Ownership Association, which is the association in the UK. And we discovered that this was actually a particular model where the team members could actually have some shares held in their name in a trust. We thought, actually, that's quite quite a good thing to do. We want to carry on working. I've got quite a lot of my working life left in, in me. I don't really want to work anywhere else. I'd rather just grow or help grow this practice with the team and innovate and, and change and put it on a really solid footing for the next 125 years. So that's really the decision-making process to get to the point to go, let's go employee-owned. So, I mean, that sounds wonderful, but now, well, for one, I know that none of the corporate-owned or private equity-backed organizations would ever be able to do that. There's no way that someone says, yeah, sure, let's share the organization. So, obviously, owned by private, you could do that. What was the structure that you chose? How does that work? Is that based on the salary? Is that based on just you have a roll-in sort of as you employ it? Is there a vesting period? Can people reinvest more money into organization? Like what are all those little details and what does it look like? Okay. So again, just for better clarity. So we transitioned on the 1st of March of this year. Before the 1st of March, there were three owners. It was me, Andrew Green and Caroline Collins. And we all had a third each of the business. And so there were three of us as owners. At the point of transition to create the employee ownership kind of status, the employee ownership model, we created a trust which holds 70% of the shares. So we sold 70% of the shares into a trust and the trust is held and operated on behalf of the employees. So none of the employees need to invest money themselves and the shares are held there. As far as we're concerned, obviously we've sold those shares into the trust and we, what we've decided to do personally is actually take that money over time from the trust rather than have it all up a lump sum at the beginning or something like, like that or have the trust raise debt to pay us out. And the reason why we chose to do that is that 
we want the practice to thrive and succeed and grow and and expand and, and obviously needs the operating capital and the ability to raise debt and things like that. So um, that was our personal decision to do that. And in the UK, we have a very good model, which is all set up by the government maybe about 10 years ago or so, which was this employee ownership trust model. So it's favorable from a tax perspective from the owners selling into the trust. And also it's favorable from a tax perspective from the employees receiving money out of the trust. So for the employees to receive money nowadays, if there's a dividend, 70% of the dividend goes into the trust and the trust distributes that according to a fair method, if you like, or fair process. And it could be based on anything really. It could be proportional to their salary. It could be linked to length of service. It could be linked to other things as well. But as long as there's an agreed protocol that the trustees of the trust agree to, and then that's what happens. As far as myself, Caroline and Andy go, we still own 10% of the shares. So in that situation, if there was a hundred pounds of dividend paid out, 70 would go to the trust and 10 pounds will go to each of us as well. I mean, that's really cool that you guys have those dividend opportunities. Is that something that the employees are, I guess, maybe on a probationary period or on a, on a vesting period prior to entering the company to be able to participate in that? Yeah. So an employee needs to be with us for 12 months before they're entitled to the benefits of the trust. It's just one of the rules we established when we set it up. It didn't feel right to make somebody wait three years or longer and it didn't seem fair either to everyone else if they come in and there happens to be a, an annual payout in their first three weeks. That doesn't seem fair either. So can you tell me two things what happened? One is what happened when you announced that and how was that received? And the second thing, how did that influence your ability to hire veterinarians in this environment today? Okay, right. So this is a really good question. We've got a pretty good team. And we've been working on culture and communication and trust and all that kind of stuff for quite a long time now. We profile all our people so we know their profiles, we know how they think and they act and the way we all communicate with each other, which is all very good. The idea within the employee ownership world is that when a company does this, they spend a year with consultants, bringing the team up to speed, educating them and them on roles and responsibilities and engagement and responsibility and all these types of things. We kind of skipped that because we knew, A, if we told the vets a year out or the, the whole team 12 months out, everybody would worry and overanalyze for 12 months. So we kind of took the brave decision to go, well, we're going to do it on the 1st of March. And on the 1st of March, that evening, we held a Zoom. We invited all 95 odd employees at the time onto the Zoom. And we had a nice pre-prepared video and you know, with all the right things mentioned and rousing music and everything else. We played this lovely video to them for about 15 minutes. And then we had about 45 minutes of Q&A on the Zoom. And that's how we broke the news to them, that they were now employee owners and had a stake in their own future. What was the reaction? Like, did you record it? Like, I wish I, like, how did people react? Was it a surprise? Was there gratitude from them? Was there worry that this is some other corporate trick? Like, what was the reaction? Yeah, I think all of them, all of them, everybody's reaction consistently was, thank goodness we're not going to be sold to a corporate. That was pretty much the resounding theme. A lot of our team, people have left other consolidators once they've been consolidated and they've they're not like got on with them there and they're not liked it for whatever reason and they joined us. They don't always stay with us, but we've got a lot of a team who have come to us for that reason. And they were worried we were going to do the same to them. 
So a lot of people just said consistency was so glad we got, we know what our future's like. That was very reassuring and it's good for their psychological safety, I guess, as well. About a third of the people also said, this is brilliant. This is fantastic. It's really, really good. About another third were like, yeah, we kind of get it. We don't really understand what we do, but it sounds okay. And then the other third was like, we have no idea what it means. We don't understand it at all, but we trust you. So we're on board with it. Did you feel like the culture changed? Did that unite people more behind sort of the organizational purpose? Do you know what, Ivan? It's early days at the moment. I suppose it's been six months. And this is kind of answering that recruitment question as well. Even though a lot of certainly other practice owners are aware of us and other people know about what we've done now, I don't think it's really out there. It's common knowledge amongst all the vets on the ground. If that makes sense, all the assistants and the practices. So I don't think it's widely, widely known that what we've done. So yes, I think it does help with recruitment once we can show them what we're made of. And once we get their interest, that probably does help, certainly. But it's early days yet for that point of view. As far as changing the culture internally, I think already we had a good culture. As far as the culture associated with the EOT at the moment, or the employee ownership element of the business, it's still quite early days, if that makes sense. We've not had a financial payout for the team yet, but we are changing things, implementing things. We've changed our structure around our leadership structure and our reporting lines throughout the whole group and actually brought everybody onto a banding system for salary. And we've got some other perks going in there. So we are starting to introduce a lot more benefits than we had previously, which is not necessarily directly related to an employee ownership structure, but because we're one, it's more likely to happen, more likely to happen quickly, if that makes sense. So it's going to be a slow burn, I think, for employees to be really raving about it and going, I say employees, I mean co-owners, you know, and I mean team members, to be really raving about it, going, this is amazing, this is fantastic. And you have to remember also, certainly in the UK, we're going through unprecedented times of demand for veterinary services with unprecedented numbers of vets. We just don't have enough vets at the moment. There's been a lot of vets leaving the country for various reasons, and we have an increased pet population. So the vets on the ground are really struggling to do the job they want to do. And that's kind of an overwhelming or overriding sentiment throughout, I think, the profession in this country at the moment, rather than just within our practice. So with the 70% ownership by the employees or the teammates, as you put them, right? co-owners, how does that adjust or affect decision-making of the vision or the strategy of the company? Again, it's a really good question. So in a sense, there's no direct involvement with leadership making in that respect. The actual trust is run by three trustees. And one's an independent, one's a previous director, and one an employee trustee as well. So there's an employee representative there. That board of trustees reviews the decisions of the executive board. And they make sure that the executive board is running the company in the best interests of the trust. So that's it. So through the trustees, if there's any real direct wishes to change direction, philosophy, things like that, then that can be imposed, if that makes sense. Then there is that loop. And the employee trustee is actually very shortly going to be holding surgeries, if you like, in different sites just to speak to her colleagues and go, look, is there anything you want to, you know, you want to feedback to the trustees or what are your ideas, what are your thoughts and, and what do you think we can do better, that kind of thing. So there is that line of communication there. So in essence, we are a business that's run properly, that's run effectively and run well. 
And so all those reporting lines from the team members come up in the usual way. So if there's a nurse or a vet tech, I guess, in your language, in your parlance, has some ideas about improving the system or on remuneration or whatever, then that will go up through line management or their own local teams and then back up to the system. And that's how it should happen in any normal business. And that happens with ours. We happen to have a side escape route as well, should it be necessary through the trust. That's amazing. Question. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it it obviously sounds like this is not something that, you know, you did this and it changed everything. You were very well run company with the respect of people that do the work and with the lines of communication and the management structure established. This is just another thing to combat sort of this corporate takeover of our industry and you secured employees. So it will be, it'll be very interesting to see how the development works. What does that look like from just general management perspective? So one of the things that you said about this line of communication, I spent about two years researching healthcare and how did they combat certain aspects of burnout and management mismatches and things like that. So a lot of that was what I found was through lean methodology, which I think that was twice tried at NHS, your healthcare system, first time not very successfully, and then I think successfully after that. And one of the main principles that I learned in the healthcare was the principle of caring for people that do the work and actually focusing on that. But that needs that direct line of communication. So can you talk a little bit more about the process? How do you take the ideas from the forefront, like from the actual nurses and the veterinarians, how they trickle up to the management team and then how they are prioritized in terms of implementation? Because if you ask 95 people what they want to change, you're running a risk of having 95 projects. So how do you prioritize them and then making sure that those that were not prioritized are communicated back for the reasons why? Yeah. So we have had a bit of a pause in our processes since the beginning of COVID. And we haven't really kind of got that up and running properly again. But before COVID, the system we were utilizing or the tools we were utilizing was a process, what we call as continuous improvement boards. So we've got, and I I think this is probably fairly common practice in in a lot of businesses, but we've got little cards, actual proper physical cards. So it's not electronic, you know, and if there's a problem or that's stated on there, the person states that they state their solution and that goes into the little pot. Then every couple of weeks we'd have a team meeting and we'd have several team meetings that across different sites because it's got to be relevant locally. And they will gather around and go, look, this is a problem. This is the solution I propose. What do people think? And someone takes ownership of it. And then that gets all written down and it's on the back of the card and it gets brought up next time for the solution and and so on and so forth. And that was actually a really neat way of doing things. Is it perfect? No. I thought it'd be absolutely amazing when we we launched it. It was about 60% good. And we were like reviewing the process and trying to improve it and seeing what we could do better. And then COVID kind of hit. And getting, you know, 20 people in a in a stuffy old Victorian building in a, in a room without any ventilation wasn't really the best thing to do. So we kind of put that to one side. Funnily enough, and I should have actually corrected you at the top of the program, and I do apologize. My title's changed now. I'm not managing director anymore. We've actually, I've stepped aside in that role, and we've brought in somebody who's got experience of running practices a lot bigger than us. And as this new colleague has come in, I can focus a lot more now on the commercial side of things, on acquisitions and development and building and things like that, which is lovely. And that kind of floats my boat. And this new colleague is actually developing new communication systems and processes as well. So we had a lovely offsite leadership meeting yesterday. And one of the topics of the day was actually exactly as you said, Ivan, is looking after the people. And I think what's really interesting is, is that 
I think anything we talk about today goes for any business. It's good business practice, no matter what the ownership model is. It's just that when it's employee owned, you've got a more compelling reason to do it. Whether it's, you know, looking after people, you know, making sure remuneration packages are good, looking after people's psychological safety, well-being, you name it, is always important for any good business. It's just more fundamental in an employee owned business. And I think that's really important to remember. So the MD that's come in is is not come from an employee ownership necessarily background, but he is really interested to see it work in action. So that's been very interesting to see. That's fascinating because what you're talking about, this continuous improvement process and the card system, that's exactly what lean and healthcare does. They have these, I don't know if you took it from there, but I don't know if you went into any sort of literature and strategies about lean implementation in healthcare. That's exactly what they do. They have these card system. I've seen it in San Francisco General Hospital. I've seen it in Boston General Hospital. I've seen it in Hopkins. Like th- this is really what they do. And I thought it was kind of antiquated. Being a techie guy, I kind of came up with additional ideas that I'll share with you after this episode, uh, how you could digitalize the process. But this is brilliant. And and arguably what you just said in the organization that is ownership or not ownership, I think that regardless of the ownership, if you implement a system where you clearly show to your colleagues, partners, employees that you listen to them, that's half of the battle. I think that's half of the battle of of attracting them and saying, I want to work for this organization because they listen to my voice. So that's just brilliant. I don't know how we blew through 25 minutes. That was too quick. Uh, But that's our promise to our listeners. If we want to learn or listeners want to learn more about your organization, directly from your website, what is it? Or if there's interesting press releases, I know that with how we found you through a press release. So where can people go and learn more about you and the organization? Well, our main practice website is, if you Google penadbets.com, that's us. From an employee ownership point of view, there's also a fledgling group, which is called the British Veterinary Employee Ownership Association, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's bveoa.org.uk. There's a landing page on there and you can request to have some more information and be happy to talk to anyone about it. And my email address is quite simple. It's, it's mflan at penabets.com. And I'll be happy to reach out or speak to anybody if they reach out to me. That's great. I really think what you guys are doing is going to be a, an inspiration, first off, for people over in your part of the world there to look at a, a great employer and a great place to be, but also for everyone that listens across the globe to listen to a, a way that you can have the feelings and, and the ability to do all those things with people. So if we were to invite a guest, who would you recommend that we have on the show with us? Well, there's a very lovely person called Alison Lambert, and she's always got lots of interesting ideas to talk about. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to hear about it. I think you guys have some great stuff going on. And and as always, we appreciate it. And, and to everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.